Do you have a big monolithic web application or service that's hard to manage, hard to change, and hard to scale? Well, maybe breaking them into microservices would give you many more options to evolve and grow that app. This week, we'll meet up again with Miguel Grinberg to discuss the trade-offs and advantages of microservices. It's Talk Python to Me, episode 121, recorded June 2nd, 2017. I'm a developer in many senses of the word because I make these applications, but I also use these verbs to make this music. I construct it line by line, just like when I'm coding another software design. In both cases, it's about design patterns. Anyone can get the job done. It's the execution that matters. I have many interests. Sometimes it can flip. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is brought to you by Datadog and us here at TalkPython Training. Be sure to check out what we're offering during the segments. It really helps support the show. Miguel, welcome back to TalkPython. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you to be here a second time. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Previously, we talked about building Flask web applications and web services, and that was really fun. And I think we're going to take it up a notch in, in terms of sort of abstraction and talk about a more general idea, which obviously is frequently done in Flask, but could be done in Pyramid, could be done in Django or you know, Node.js, right? Microservices. Yes. So microservices are, are really interesting. And there's a couple of ideas vying for this, like how do we decompose our, our big applications and we'll dig into that. But first, I just want to let people know if they want to hear your previous episode, that was episode 48. And maybe we could quickly talk about PyCon. We were just both there, right? You have a good time there? Yeah, yeah. I had a, a lot of fun. It always surprises me that people recognize me and they, they stop me and they say, you know, thank you, your tutorials, your blog. was <laughs> was uh, What got me into programming or it helped me advance. So I always end up with a smile. It's really amazing how many people I was around who were like, wow, people actually really appreciate what I do. Right. <laughs> and, and yeah, yeah. Likewise. I mean, I just do it because I enjoy it. I, I mean, to be honest, I do it for myself. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's really great to see that you make a difference. Like some of the other podcasters at our podcaster booth were like, wow, people really appreciate what we do. I like, you know, you, you do this work often really very much in isolation. I don't mean it in a bad way, but like you sit down to write your book or you write your series of blog posts or you record a course or even the podcast is kind of, you know, just two people, right? And then you go to one of these events, and you're like, wow, there's a lot of people who this actually affects. How cool it is that I'm, I'm doing this. Yeah, that's something that I really enjoy. Yeah, and you so, did yeah. a tutorial, right? On microservices, right? Uh, I, did, I did a tutorial. So, so these are the, the three-hour-long tutorials that happened before the main conference. So yeah, this year, this is the fourth consecutive year that I do a tutorial, and this one was on microservices. Yeah, excellent. So we'll definitely have to put that into the show notes. Sure, yeah. It, it's, it's been on YouTube. Like the, the day after I gave it, they, uh, they put it. They're very efficient. It's amazing. They really yeah. seem to have the, the AV work down at PyCon these days. They're very good, yes. I think it's also part of their outreach mission, I would guess. Like there's 3,300 people that came to PyCon, but there's, you know, already I think some of those videos have more people watching it online than actually attended the conference. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
So what were some of your favorite sessions, like some talks or experiences? Always dictionaries. Those are always interesting. For example, there were a few this year. So, uh, and, and I always end up learning something new that I didn't know. It's amazing, right? <laughs> talks about dictionaries, I always go to. <laughs> those, those are uh, really nice. Of course, I, I enjoyed the, uh, the closing keynote by, by Kelsey Hightower because it was about microservices. Yeah, very much was. Yeah, yeah. So that's definitely a great follow-on to this as well, using Kubernetes and Docker and whatnot. All right. So yeah, before we get into microservices, maybe just tell everyone, you know, some people know you, some people don't. What do you do day to day? Where are you coming from? What's your perspective? In the last few years, I have been working, well, actually for, for a very long time, I've been working as a software engineer. In the last few years, I've been building cloud applications. Uh, right now, I'm uh, working for Rackspace and I am helping build some of the services that our customers use when they go to the Rackspace control panel. More specifically, the services that I work on are ones that allow customers to deploy applications that, that then we manage. They deploy applications very easily by clicking and dragging stuff. Basically, we do all the magic. And we, of course, we use microservices for all of this. Yeah, that, that's really cool. And you have a book, right? That we talked about just a little bit in the previous podcast. Right. And then I have a book. The book is called Flask Web Development. It's now, I think, a little bit over three years old. And I'm currently working on the second edition. So probably later this year, hopefully before Christmas, we'll see. The second edition will be out. That's going to basically refresh uh, the, the book's largely going to be the same. It, it's uh, it's going to update a few things that changed in Flask or some of the extensions and related projects that I that I referenced. Yeah, progress is great, but when you create things like books or video courses, it they it's right. It's yeah, really I mean, frustrating when they change. Actually, yeah, I mean it's really amazing to be honest that um, you know after three years or a little bit more, large parts of the book are still. You know, updated Flask. You know, thanks God, it's not framework that uh, likes to change things in big ways. Yeah, that's right. It was it was a pretty mature framework when you got to it. If you did like Japronto or Sanic right now, you might be rewriting that thing in a year. Uh, right. Yeah. I, actually, I I do have uh, one of my open source projects. I have support for for Sanic and AIO HTTP as well as Flask and Django and many others. It's uh, this uh, socket IO server, it's called Python socket IO. And I, I find that AIO, HTTP and SANIC require more uh, attention than uh, the old friends from the whiskey world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but it's good. Those things are changing. Those things are growing. Uh, those are the frameworks that are pushing the web forward in yes, the Python space. Yeah, absolutely. So it makes living around their orbit more work, but I think it's going to make it all better for everyone in the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So... Let's start with what are microservices? Like if I want to just take and create like a, keep it on Flask since that's where your book is. If I want to just create like a Flask app, I could just put everything in there, right? I could do my right. user management. I could do my data access. I could do my reporting, all that stuff. I could just stick into like one big Flask app right. and, and uh, ship that, I, right? Correct. And I covered many times, it's, it's in the book and in tutorials that I've done in previous years, you know, with Flask, you uh, you have a way to organize your application when it starts to become large. It gives people some trouble. There are sometimes issues with secular dependencies, but you can do it. And you, you can end up with a single application. 
in the context of uh, microservices, we call these these types of applications uh, monoliths because they're, they're one big thing. Yeah, yeah. So maybe compare and contrast with uh, what what are mono, what are microservices relatively. I can draw a parallel. So we all know that if you write your application in a single big function, that that's really not good, right? It, it's hard to maintain. Yeah, you should at least use two. Two you, functions. You should use two or three, right? <laughs> <laughs> So, so basically what you do when you're talking about functions is you, you write small functions. Each function, at least you should try that, that it, it does one thing. And then the functions call each other. And that's how you, how you achieve the big problem, right? The solution to the big problem, right? Right. So, and functions, the way I think of it is if, if I can't give it just a simple name that says what it does, right. it's wrong. There's something wrong with it. I need to change. <laughs> I need to change the function so I can name it better, right? Correct. Right. So microservices, it's basically the same idea, but applied to a web service. So the traditional way in which you develop a web application in Python, say using Flask, Bottle, or Django, or anything, Pyramid, basically, like you said before, you, you put all the, all the contents in one application. And, and then without realizing it, you have a, a coupling between the different subsystems, right? You, you have a a user's subsystem that keeps track of your users. And then uh, you have uh, many others. And, you know, they, they all use the same database models. And you don't realize it, but you are basically making it harder for that application to grow and maintain because of all the uh, these references that one subsystem has into the other. So solution that uh, microservices bring is that you take all these uh, separate conceptually separate subsystems and you create a separate web service with each one. Right. So maybe you've got like um, a front end web app that still does the back end server side stuff, but in, instead of going straight to the database or straight to some sub modules in your web app, it calls these related microservices that sort of implement the functionality, right? Correct. Right. So that gives you uh, a number of advantages, some disadvantages too. But the, the, the clear advantage is that each service is going to be very simple. We're going back to, you know, you know very small code bases for each service. For example, with Flask, you, you can easily write a, an entire microservice in a single file. Right. So give us some examples of microservices that would be reasonable to create. Like, would there be a logging microservice? Would there be an authentication? Or like, how, how would you... How have you decomposed this before? So uh, the, the example that I used at the, uh, the PyCon tutorial was a chat application. So the chat application exists as a monolith, and I showed during the class how to break it into microservices. And basically, uh, there were five microservices. So one was users, that's the name, basically registered users. The second one was tokens, basically took care of generating uh, authentication tokens for, for the client-side app. There was a, a third microservice was messages. This is the one that adds and uh, basically stores messages when, when a user types a message. The fourth was the UI application. So basically, the, there was a very simple service that served the, uh, the JavaScript and CSS and HTML files to the client. Super simple. And then the final one was uh, the one that uh, did the server push. So this was uh, based on WebSocket using my uh, Socket.io server. And anytime there was a change, either a new user or a user leaving the chat or a new message, the service knew how to push those updates to all the clients. So, so five microservices, 
Uh, they're all completely independent uh, applications, in this case, written in uh, Flask. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. It definitely adds some complexity, right? Like, you're no longer maintaining uh, the configuration for one app, but you're maintaining five or four, right. and then so, the, the interplay between them, right? Like Correct. So the, the, the complexity, I did mention this in the class, the complexity doesn't go away. Basically, you, you're, you're shifting the complexity to a different place, and now we have a, an ops. Yeah it's more complicated to deploy an application that's based on five. And th this was a relatively small app, right? No normally you, you, you may have dozens or maybe even hundreds of microservices. So, so yeah, definitely the complexity goes somewhere else. What I find that I like to shift the complexity into those places because I'm a software developer, right? So from my point of view, <laughs> I really like, you know, clear code that, that's easy to maintain. For example, uh, something that I, I see done with microservices is if you have a team where you have a beginner, right? Usually, if, if you have a, a big complex application, you're going to be afraid that this person that, that doesn't have a lot of experience may inadvertently break something. Right. And it, they could break it entirely, right? Like, Correct. Right. They, Not, it could be... You know, unknowingly, right? It, it's, it's because of all, all this uh, coupling that, you know, from over time uh, keeps you know, increasing in, in these types of applications. Right. And the slightest, the slightest little problem in like even a trivial part of the app, if it makes it fail to start, like you've taken the entire site down for everyone, Correct. for yeah, everything, it, right? It, it's gone for everybody. <laughs> right. So with microservices, however, you can have a beginner work on, on one microservice, even own it. And if there are any problems with that, that microservice, that's not going to affect the overall application, right? All the other microservices will continue to run. So uh, this is in general, not only when, when a beginner uh, makes a mistake, but uh, in general, if one microservice is sick, it goes down or uh, has problems, that doesn't mean that the whole application goes down. It's, it's just that, that system. And many times if you kill that microservice and start a new instance, then you're, you're back up running and you, you have more time to fix the problem. Yeah, that's really an interesting way to think about it. And you could probably even just force a rollback to the previous deploy Correct. and run that you know that that could be super hard to do in your regular application because maybe the ui has changed maybe the database schema in some little part has changed and sql alchemy freaks out or whatever right right yeah the databases are one, one of the big reasons why deployments for monolithic applications it's so hard right once you migrate the database I mean, yes, migration frameworks have uh, downgrades, uh, but you know, very few people use them. And even those that, that use them, many times they don't test them, so they're usually broken. Yeah, and they could be remove this column which had data in it. Correct, <laughs> right. So, so yes, the idea with microservices, in particular to databases, is that each microservice has its own database. So uh, if you migrate one database for, for say, for, for the messages service, that has nothing to do with the users. So uh, it's a much smaller problem if you end up having problems. Yeah, it's really cool. There's a ton of advantages to that. I like the way, um, gosh, who was it? Uh, Martin Fowler was referring to these databases as the ones from the monoliths and bigger ones. He called those integration databases and right. these called application databases. And I'm not sure if those are, that's quite the right term, but I really like to think of it as like you can take this one big complex database that's trying to represent everything from every part of the app or multiple apps so the user's table is as complicated as it could possibly be right the order history table is as complicated as it could be because it has to support every single possible option but if you break it into these little microservices 
you know, you could have a really simple, like, here's the microservice that handles orders. It has a database that handles orders. Right. It's Done. just that. Correct. Yeah. Now, uh, th there's a problem with that. Uh, you lose the ability to, uh, to run joins because now, now you don't have everything in one database. Right. So if, if yes. you need to correlate users or customers with orders, you have to do it in the application. Yeah, exactly. Like you can't join across HTTP requests. <laughs> Correct. That, <laughs> really. that doesn't work. You have no. to do it in, in the Python space in, in our case. Yeah. I, I, I don't find that, that terrible. That, that's my first observation. My second observation is that even though um, people that know me know that I'm a big fan of relational databases, when you're working with microservices and your databases are usually one table or two tables, you know, the, the reason to, to use relational databases sort of lessens. And now it's starting to make more sense to go to a NoSQL database. Yeah, especially a document database. Yes. Where you've, right. the one thing that you get kind of contains the pre-joined data as a hierarchy anyway. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. So I can definitely see how that makes like rolling back one of these services if it gets sick much, much easier. And the chance that it gets sick is smaller as well, right? Because it's simpler. There's a, a lot less uh, chances of making mistakes because you're working with a much simpler code base. How about scalability? Well, right. So if, if, if you have a uh, big monolithic app and uh, you need to scale it, you need to scale the whole thing. Maybe going back to the chat example, you're probably going to have a lot more activity around messages than around users, even less on tokens. So if you were to scale a monolith, you're going to be basically, you're going to have to provision, you know, for the entire thing. So right. You have to work, you, need... you have to aim for the worst case scenario. Correct. Basically across any part of it, right? Say you decide that to handle the load on messages from users, you, you need to uh, run 10 instances you're going to have to provision 10 instances for everything, right? Because it, it's all one piece. Now, when, when you are doing microservices, you, you can scale each service uh, independently. That's so really, really have, cool. It, it, it's super exciting. Uh, you, you can scale, I mean, if, if you use something like uh, Kubernetes, for example, you, you can scale across different hosts. If you have a cluster of uh, container hosts, automatically does it for you. So you, you can have not only scalability, but reliability by by having your instances of the same service distributed across multiple hosts. That is, that, yeah, that's really, really neat to think that, okay, I might have two or three of the straight-up web front-ends, maybe five of the orders, servers, you know, three of the message senders, and just to be able to configure those independently is and, really and, cool. and then dynamically as well, right? Yeah. I mean, those, I mean the, the concept of auto-scaling also applies to this. So, you know, the messages can, you know, or orders or whatever, anything that's, that's very active, you can decide, okay, I'm going to start one more. And, and some other components we haven't discussed yet help with that dynamicity. Sure. One of the things that was striking about the Instagram keynote, which is a really cool story of moving Django from Python 2 to Python 3, while you have millions and millions of users and doing it on a single branch without going down was, was super interesting. But one of the things they are really obsessing about was how can we get basically being very aggressive with how they work with memory so they can get the best memory usage out of each server that they work with. Like, for example, they went so far as disabling garbage collection in their Python apps, period. 
<laughs> which is just that crazy. I think scary, that, but... <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, they have a really interesting blog post they wrote up about it that they they were able to get much better um, memory sharing across processes if they did that, like dramatically better. It made it right. It, it probably makes for a cleaner use of memory, right? Memory is not coming and going. Exactly, and apparently the the cycles that were leaked were not sufficiently bad. That there was a it, surprisingly it worked. So the point is they're really really focused on this, and when you scale the monolith over and over and over, maybe it takes 200 megs per worker process, right? right? Yeah, if you want 10 of them, that's, that's a gig. But you could get these other ones much, much smaller and only scale the parts that are really hot, right? Correct, right. It, it, it's also uh, big savings, right? I mean, if you, if you need to buy hosting for 100 instances of a monolith, that, that's going to be very expensive. That's going to be a, a lot of cloud instances. Uh, now, if, yeah. if you're using microservices, you're, you're, you're scaling up you know, very little things and only the ones that you need. So you have yeah. a lot more knobs and uh, you end up saving a lot of money. Yeah, and this was not the case with Instagram because they were already in this monolith space. But had they been in microservices, they could have done their migration from Python 2 to Python 3 and Django 1.3 to modern. <laughs> they could have done that microservice by microservice and it probably would have been dramatically easier. One at a time. And if uh, so that's... One one of the other benefits you get, say, I don't know if this is true, probably not, but let's say one of the services that if, if, in, in this uh, example, if they had microservices, if one of them was could not be upgraded to Python 3 due to some late time dependency that hasn't been upgraded, that's not a problem. You, you can keep that one running Python 2. It doesn't matter. So you, you're not constrained to use the same platform in all your services. If you find that some, some service uh, can be benefited if, if you write it in Go or, or in Ruby or in Node.js, that's totally fine. You can pick the best tool for each service. Yeah, that, that's really cool that you can break it up. And it also means, at, like, say, the data level, right? Like you talked about relational versus NoSQL. Like you could do MySQL on some pieces and MongoDB on others. Absolutely. And you don't have to say, well, this part's going to have to fit into Mongo or that part's going to have to fit into MySQL when it would more naturally live somewhere else. Yeah. So uh, basically, you can pick the best tools for each service and each service is completely independent from the others. But basically, you are encouraged to uh, to keep the, uh, the this coupling that's that's always bad under control. Uh, by, by having these, uh, these um, you know, hard boundaries between services. Hey everyone, this is Michael. Let me tell you about Datadog. They're sponsoring this episode. Performance and bottlenecks don't exist just in your application code. Modern applications are systems built upon systems, and Datadog lets you view the system as a whole. Let's say you have a Python web app running Flask. It's built upon MongoDB and hosted and scaled out on a set of Ubuntu servers running Nginx and MicroWSGI. Add Datadog and you can view and monitor and even get alerts across all of these systems. Datadog has a great getting started tutorial that takes just a few moments. And if you complete it, they'll send you a sweet Datadog t-shirt for free. Don't hesitate. Visit talkpython.fm slash datadog and see what you've been missing. That's talkpython.fm slash datadog. You know, there are some companies that basically have rules that say you're not allowed to create a web app that has more than 10,000 lines of code in it. <laughs> what you have to do is create a service and then maybe multiple services and then you can construct your app out of these services, right? Almost like um, creating these guidelines that just naturally leads to microservices. 
So we competed against monoliths. The other thing that I feel is like really strongly working in this space, trying to achieve the same thing, has some benefits, some trade-off is serverless architecture. AWS Lambda, Azure Functions, things like this, right? Yes. Could, well, that, what, what do you think about those relative right. to this? So uh, glad that you asked because that's actually how we at Rackspace, in, in my team, that, that's how we deploy our microservices. So um, we haven't discussed this, but one, one of the uh, main components in a microservices platform is the load balancer. You, you know, to, to achieve all these scalability and uh, no downtime upgrades and another benefit that you get, you need to have all the services load balanced. Even if you run one instance, it needs to be behind a load balancer. So what you get when you go to a serverless platform like, uh, like Lambda on AWS is that AWS manages the load balancing for you. So all you need to do is, you don't even need to have a, a whiskey server. You, all, all you need to do is write your microservice as a function, and then uh, you, you just upload the function with all its dependencies to AWS. And, and then anytime you know, the function gets called, AWS will somehow figure out how to run it. It'll start a container, put the code in it, and then run it. If you, uh, in a burst, you, you, you make 100 calls, then you know, AWS is running the load balancer and it, it, it'll run 100 containers for you. You don't have to worry about it which is really nice. And then, and then if, if, you, if you make an upgrade, you know, the moment you make the upgrade, any, any calls from, from then on will use the new code. So you, you got immediate no downtime upgrades as well. Yeah, that's, that's really neat. Do you think that there's good situations to have like a combination? It seems to me like there's certain things that would be really well suited for like a serverless Lambda type of thing and others maybe more stateful, like sort of a bigger microservice that that would much better fit somewhere else. So I'm uh, thinking like if you wanted to say charge someone's credit card with Stripe, like to do that as a like a single Lambda function, that's really stateless, really straightforward. Maybe that would make perfect sense. Maybe something more complex, like for example, your message push stuff wouldn't necessarily be as appropriate there. Right, so in, here's one, one very important thing that Lambda does not support. It does not support WebSocket services. So server push, exactly what you just mentioned. Basically for that, you need to have a permanent connection with, uh, with the client. So, so when we have a WebSocket connection, all the clients have permanent connection to the server. The server needs to handle a lot of connections. Now the Lambda services are, or, or functions I should say, really ephemeral, right? They run and then they exit and then they don't exist anymore until you, you make another call. So th there's no way to have a permanent presence in Lambda. So in that case, you, you, you will have to host that in a container or, or something like a, uh, an instance, uh, a cloud instance, for example. Sure. And do you get maybe better response time with if you run it and say your own container that's, that's more permanent? Like, so there's probably a little startup to infrequently called Lambda functions or something, right? In general, if, if you're looking for performance, you will not be using Lambda. That, that's, that's my experience. It's, uh, in general, slower. So um, I, I can give you an example from work. You know, we, we, we don't have, you know, nothing that's extremely complex, but uh, typically we see a REST API call that, that's hosted on Lambda, and it, goes, it gets to Lambda through another AWS service called API Gateway. And we're seeing that nothing is uh, nothing takes less than half a second, so 500 milliseconds, 
for, for a simple call. Uh, there's really, we found no way to bring it below that. Uh, no matter how simple the, the actual endpoint is. There's that much overhead just to get to your function, basically, get it up and running and so on. Right, yeah, there are so many layers of that, that go through AWS uh, before you know you, your code gets to run that you, really you can optimize all you want, you're still not going to make a difference. Yeah, whereas in a Flask or other Python and WSGI app, like 10 millisecond response time would be totally reasonable. Correct, right. Uh, you, you can see much faster times and, and then you have the option to go async if you want you know, something that's that's very, very fast and can tolerate uh, a lot of clients. Yeah, so I guess the takeaway probably is like these serverless components of microservices, these like serverless building blocks are cool, but you can't just, in general, it wouldn't make sense to just go and I'm only doing that for the most part, probably. It makes sense in many cases, not, not, not every case. And you have to keep performance in mind. Typically, if, uh, you know, the, the kind of services that we do, these are all, requested by a, uh, by a rich client application, something like Angular or React. And, you know, th- th- those are background requests. So, it, yeah, if it takes half a second, that's fine. Yeah, usually not, not a big deal. We actually, we, we had uh, one of the uh, little services that we wanted to build at some point was a auto-completion. <laughs> yeah. It, it and was that frustrating that. on Lambda? Yes, that, exactly. That you cannot... You, you cannot host that in Lambda. That's the typing equivalent of hearing your own voice echo back in a call, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not so, good. So, yeah, that, that didn't go to work. Yeah. That was... So one of the challenges I can certainly see, especially if you start throwing containers <laughs> into this as well, is like if I have a monolith, it knows how to find the user, the user interaction bit and the credit card bit and so on. It just, you know, imports and it works. (laughs) But if you break it across all these different servers, like how do you keep it connected without hardwiring every bit of deployment into the code? There's a component that all microservices platform platform have uh, that's called the service registry. So um, basically there are, you know, each platform does it in a slightly different way. But in general, the idea is that when, when you start a service or an instance of a service, the first thing that the service does is talk to the service registry, which is in a known address, right? So, so everybody know, knows uh, wh- where to find the service registry. That one you basically hard code the domain or something in. Right. It's hard coded. It's usually in production deployments, you, it, it's highly available. So you, you are not going to have, you know, a single point of contact. Probably you hard code a, a few, you know, addresses to talk to the service. And if one of them is down, you try the next one. So you want to make sure that you know this piece of code is always running. Basically, the service starts and then it reports itself to the registry. It says, "Hey, I'm here. I'm at this address. If you're running containers, the address is going to be basically Docker, for example. It's going to come up with some port for you. So you you find out what what port you're running on, and then you tell the service, "Okay, I'm running on this address and this port. So I'm ready to start taking jobs." Yeah, yeah, and that service registry can be. Very simple code, right? It could it, almost just store like a, a dictionary in memory or something, right? Right. It, it, it's essentially it, it's it's a dictionary, right? If you, if you think about it, the, the the complication is that you you want that to be super robust. If the the server where the registry is running goes down, then nothing can find. There's no way for microservices to communicate. So it's very important that you host it, you know, multiple locations, and and you know that that there's a uh, redundancy. Do people sometimes use things like S3? Just like, I'm going to write to this bucket. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, 
That's actually an, an interesting idea. I haven't seen that. It might get complicated with uh, multiple accesses. Right? Yeah. You, you, you yeah. need to implement some sort of uh, locking mechanism, Apple <laughs> thing, to, to keep the, you know, the, the file that has all the, the list of services robust and, and never uh, get corrupted. Yeah, maybe each file could have it. Uh, each service could have its own file. I don't or, know. Or, uh, right, you, you could write different files. That, that actually could work. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that could work. Interesting. But basically, here's a really simple thing that just every every server can go, I'm here, the things I need, where are they, right? Right. So then, and just to complete this, the, one of the, the simplest uh, service registry options, that, that the, the one that I like, is called etcd. It's an open source project from CoreOS. And uh, basically, yeah, you, you send a, uh, a request. You, you can even do it in a bash script with curl. Just, okay. It's a key value database, basically, that's very fast. So then etcd, in this example, will have the list of all the services that are running. On the other end, we have the load balancer, and the load balancer will go periodically check the contents of this uh, service registry and refresh its own configuration based on that. So a service starts, it writes itself to the service registry, then on the other side, the load balancer says, oh, there's a new service, I'm going to add it. Yeah, oh, that's that's cool. I didn't think of using the service registry to drive the load balancer, yes. but that's cool. Yeah, that- that, that's very nice. There are, uh, there's actually, I know of one uh, load balancer that, that has this functionality embedded. It's called Traffic. If you go with a more traditional one like Nginx or HAProxy, which are the ones that I've used for a lot of time, with those, you, you need to add a, a piece to the side that does the, uh, the watching the service registry and then updating the configuration and restarting the load balancer. And, right, and right. The one that I know about uh, which is actually written by by Kelsey. It's called ConfD. That's the one that I, I showed in the class. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And Nginx restarts pretty quickly, so it's it's yes pretty good. Right. Nginx is pretty good about reloading itself cleanly when when you update the configuration. HAProxy is getting there. It's getting better. It's a little bit clunky, but basically it starts a new process when when you want to update the configuration and process by which all the connections are passed from the old process to the new process has been for many years has been problematic it costs some downtime it's much better these days okay that's great another challenge i can imagine is if i just start using logging in my monolith app (laughs) it will all go to the same file it will go always in order unless i'm doing threading it's a piece of cake right it's a piece of cake (laughs) If I have 20 little microservices, how do I like trace through the steps? Right. You need help. You really can't uh, manage uh, 20 log files. Sometimes it, it gets insane. So uh, basically you use, uh, you, you find another piece, but basically a, a log uh, consolidator. Uh, and there's one that's pretty good for, I mean, if, if you're uh, doing Docker containers, that's called Logspout. Logspout, it's also okay. Source, Logspout. So basically what, what this does is it grabs all the logs from all the containers in a host, the host where Logspout is running, and then basically it outputs a stream that you can watch over, uh, for example, you, you can connect with a web browser. It does WebSocket, for example. So you can connect over WebSocket and, and then watch the stream of logs in real time. Or you can, you can connect Logspout to something more... Uh, more useful in a production environment, which will be, uh, for example, an Elk stack, so Elasticsearch, uh, Logstash, and Kibana, which is this trio of open source apps 
that basically create a, uh, a very powerful load storage and search solution. Yeah, okay. So you basically you put in something that like brings it back into one place. Yes, you, you, you usually want to have everything in one stream and, and then you, you can filter if you want. But imagine if, if, you have, uh, if you have five instances of the same microservice, you may, even though it's five different ones, you may want to see the entire thing because if, if, uh, if a client is sending requests to this service, requests are going to randomly arrive to any of those five. Right, it's hitting the load balancer, yeah. Right, through the load, la- load balancer, of course. So you, you probably want to see the sequence regardless of which, which of the instances get a, uh, you know, a specific request. Yeah, yeah. Do you do or do people do things where they like somehow identify a request? So like flag it with some kind of unique ID at the top and then flow that through so that you can say this, this is the steps that this request yeah, went through? Yeah, that, that's pretty common. So, some, uh, some platforms offer that. I implemented by hand in some cases myself, but basically, yes, the entry point request, so, so the, the, the first, the, the service that receives a request from the outside world assigns an ID to that request. And then in any communications that service has with other microservices, it will pass that ID. So you always preserve and log the, the initial ID, and then, and then you get a, a trace of all the services that worked on a single client request. Right. And the infrastructure to actually do the communication between microservices, is that typically requests? There are different ways. So the, the, the easiest will be to use HTTP as, as an interface, so a REST API for each service. And then, yeah, you use uh, Python requests. Some people prefer something that's uh, less chatty. So HTTP, as you know, you know, you have all these requests, the, the, the headers, you know, all, all that stuff. Mm. When you are talking to a client, that makes sense, right? And besides, that's the only way the browser, the browser can, uh, or, or an HTTP client can talk to the server. But what, when you're talking among services, you may say, well, okay, I, I want something quicker. So, so some people implement uh, RPC schemes where mm-hmm. a service can say to the other server, hey, I need, to do, I, I need you to do this. And it's, uh, for example, passing messages through a, a message queue which could be a Redis yeah. queue or SQS if you're on AWS. Do people set up socket servers, maybe? You could do a socket server too, sure. Yeah, yeah. if you're looking for really low latency, low traffic. The main idea, what I would consider a good design point, you know, when thinking about how microservices communicate, is you, you want to leave the door open to having uh, different you know, tech stacks on different services. You, you don't want to go with something that, so let, let me give you an example. I would probably not use a Celery worker for this, right? Because that, that that will basically restrict me to use Python. Right. And you probably wouldn't ship data across the wire as pickle. Right. Yeah. As versioning issues, not just not just Python right. yeah. to other, but even within Python. Python that to be Python yeah. could be a big problem too. Right. Yeah, so yeah. uh you know the, the, the way Celery works, I, I think it's not you know it's not friendly to to the microservices idea. So the idea is that microservices try to push. So yeah, I will go HTTP, maybe Messages are JSON formatted over uh, over a queue. Mm-hmm. You know, all, all things that you are sure that any technology can easily communicate over. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I, I imagine there's a lot of JSON happening back in the data oh, center. Yeah, definitely. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah, nice. So that maybe brings us to an interesting place to talk about the tools. We talked about requests and some of the other tools that work and don't work, but what are the other Python tools that you might involved here well of course you you need a, a framework right I and mean, we, we discussed this we i i like 
full surprise. I like to use Flask, but really you, you can use any web framework that you like, right? As long as it knows how to communicate with the other services. As far as uh, other Python tools, uh, there are there are many packages that talk to to service registries, for example. So if you want your Flask-based or Python-based microservice to to be able to talk to the service registry, there, there's packages for certainly for etcd. If you use uh, another one like console, for example, this is one from HashiCore, there's packages. So, so, so you're going to find a lot of support for these tasks that you need to do that are sort of specific to microservices in the, in the Python ecosystem. Sure. Besides that, you're going to be doing things, and, and this, this is something that I really like, in the same way like, like you work with a monolith, but you're going to be working with a much, much, much smaller code bases. So you're going to, still, you're going to be doing unit tests the usual way, but you're going to be testing each service separately. And then you're going to have integration tests if you need, and you probably do. But yeah, nothing really changes. It, it's just that the scale goes, you know, you're doing your work on a much smaller scale. You're working with smaller applications. Yeah, it sounds to me like they're easier to work on and maintain and deploy, but maybe more difficult to initially set up the infrastructure that wires them together. Yes. You have more yeah, servers yeah. to set up. You've got the load balancer. You've got the service registry. Like these things you have to add. But Correct. once that is in place, it kind of sounds like life gets easier. So there's like like a bar to cross, but once you cross it, you're good? Yeah, right. I, I agree with that. Uh, yes. It, it's difficult to set up the, the platform. And of course, you, you, you can go, uh, if, if, if you use uh, Kubernetes, for example, or AWS Lambda, you know, a lot of all those pieces are done for you. You don't have to worry about you know, load balancers and uh, service registries, right? They, they do it for you. This portion of Talk Python to me is brought to you by us. As many of you know, I have a growing set of courses to help you go from Python beginner to novice to Python expert. And there are many more courses in the works. So please consider Talk Python training for you and your team's training needs. If you're just getting started, I've built a course to teach you Python the way professional developers learn, by building applications. Check out my Python Jumpstart by building 10 apps at talkpython.fm course. Are you looking to start adding services to your app? Try my brand new consuming HTTP services in Python. You'll learn to work with RESTful HTTP services as well as SOAP, JSON, and XML data formats. Do you want to launch an online business? Well, Matt McKay and I built an entrepreneur's playbook with Python for Entrepreneurs. This 16-hour course will teach you everything you need to launch your web-based business with Python. And finally, there's a couple of new course announcements coming really soon. So if you don't already have an account, be sure to create one at training.talkpython.fm to get notified. And for all of you who have bought my courses, thank you so much. It really, really helps support the show. In the, this class that I gave at PyCon, I, I didn't want to just tell, okay, install Kubernetes and you're done. I wanted to teach what microservices are. So I built my own platform, which was a lot of fun. And I, I thank the, the PSF for approving my tutorials ideas and <laughs> let, me, <laughs> let me work on this. It was a lot of fun. And I, I wanted to demonstrate that, that really it's not as hard as it sounds. You can go pick you know, the best tools for each of the different tasks you know, in, in a very flask you know, fashion, right? Mm. Where, where everything is, it's done, you know, the, the, you, you pick the best tool for each task. Yeah, it sounds like uh, people who like micro frameworks for their web frameworks might like this as well, right? Because you kind of get a pick and... Yes, they're, they're going to find that there's, there's a lot of affinity, right? So I, I, I built a platform using Bash. So it, it's all Bash scripts. You, you can do a, 
You've seen Kelsey Hightower do a super cool voice-operated demo of a no-downtime upgrade, right? So take away the, the voice thing. I didn't do that. But, you know, <laughs> during class, I showed how with a bash script, you can deploy your upgrades without the server the service ever going down. You know, your application keeps running while you do the, the deployment. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. So is there a roadmap or some guidance on how to take maybe... Uh... 50,000 line monolith web app and turn it into a, a number of uh, services? What, what? That's really difficult. I think that the best advice I can give you is you probably cannot do it all in one go. You're going to have to find a strategy to do you know, phased migration to microservices. You need to have a very good unit tests in place because the, the task of basically what you're going to do in most cases is take the monolith and put it inside a microservices platform as a big piece, right? And, and then over time, you're going to start taking little pieces out of it and write microservices, right? So the task of writing a microservice when, when you have, you know, the monolith is basically involves a lot of copying and pasting, right? You have to move endpoints that are in the monolith to a standalone application. Sure. And that, that's pretty easy in some aspect, but breaking the tight coupling and the dependencies of code that you're moving around, it sounds to me like it could be pretty challenging. Yes, it's difficult. It's actually hard. You know, all, all the, basically, when, when you work on a monolith, you, you accumulate technical debt. That, that's pretty common. You're going to find that many times that technical debt is going to inform your decisions. You're going to take less than ideal decisions when you design your microservices to keep things the same way. I can give you an example for in, in this, uh, the project that I showed during the, the PyCon class, I was actually migrating the, this chat application to microservices. And I started and I migrated the UI first, that, that was very easy. And then I migrated users. And then I went to migrate tokens. And I realized that I could do a much better job with tokens. The, the tokens in the old application were, were sort of inefficient, were random strings. You know, when you're working with uh, microservices, you want tokens that can be verified without calling the token service. And when, when you need that, you use usually use JSON web tokens, which you can verify with cryptography. So I had to decide, I mean, do, do I keep you know, this and make it inefficient? Or do I say, okay, I'm going to draw a line in the sand and I'm going to change the token format, but then everything is going to break. I'm going to have to migrate all the services you know, to the new token style. Right. And, and those right. decisions, you know, on a real application, they're going to be, you know, much harder to make. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. But uh, so one thing I was thinking of while you were speaking of like how you might break this apart, it, it seems like you could almost do the partition in the web tier and then the data. Like, so for example, if you have a database that obviously the monolith talks to the database, all of it to the same, through the same connections. If you could break this out into services, they theoretically could go back and just continue talking to the same database and you could kind of get the service decomposition piece working. And then you could say, okay, now how do we move this into the application database that's yes. dedicated to yeah. each one of the services? So that, that could be a valid approach. So what, what, when you do it that way, if, if you're sharing the database, then the, the zero downtime upgrades are still difficult. Yeah, I'm just thinking as right. a transitional so thing. it's going to be a transition, right? You, yeah. you want to go all the way eventually. But, but yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, you, you have to figure it out. It depends on the application, what's the best route. But yeah, it's difficult. Uh, what I've seen some people do is they say, okay, I'm going to migrate to microservices, but only from now on. I'm not going to 
change what I have. I so see. basically, they, they grandfather this big piece. You know, they, they think of it as a microservice, even though it's not. It's a big right? microservice. Right. It's, it's a big one. But, but then, you know, from then on, any new functionality, they start writing in microservices. And, and that, that's actually a, a very valid approach. In many cases, it, it's the only viable way, right? Sure. Sure, sure. How does software development change for a team when they're transitioning to microservices? Like how does their world get different? Well, they, they don't have to all work in the same code, right? So, so that, that, that's a big plus. Fewer merge conflicts, right? You you basically merge conflicts. And for for me, that, that I don't remember when I had a mer- merge uh, conflict last, right? I, yeah, you don't usually see that. So usually, you, you're going to find that your team, the, the members, will get specialized in specific services, right? For example, at, at Rackspace, I've, I've been doing a lot of authentication microservices, right? So sort of, you know, when when there's a new need for authentication, you, I, I I I do it usually. Some people may not like that, right? May, may prefer to be generalists. So yeah, it, it, it depends. But but you, you you find that you know some some people is more basically has has affinity to certain parts of the system, certain microservices. Sure. And and now they can focus more on it now because it's more explicit. Right. Yeah, and, and 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 they they can they can do a much better job at you know that specific task because they they don't have all the baggage of the remaining. The, the rest of the system that's uh, basically that needs to be that, that you, you have to make sure that you don't break. Right. So one thing it seems like it might make sense would be to rotate the team around through the different services, potentially, if, if you want to make sure like there's many people that kind of know the whole thing, like you can say, okay, this month you're on this service, that month you're on. Yeah, that, that's actually a good idea. You, you, you can, you can find a, uh, a way for, so the person that's experienced with the microservice to sort of mentor a new member, you know, and, and basically code review the changes that the, the new person makes, for example. Yeah. Uh, there, there, there are a lot of uh, different ways to, to make sure that everybody gets a little bit of everything, sure. Yeah. So, so yeah, o- overall, uh, I, I, I find that if you like to code, right, I mean, we, we, we can talk about the ops side, right? If, if, if you like to code, then you're going to be coding more and, uh, you know, fixing bugs a lot less. You, you yeah. can find uh, that you're going to be working on small code bases and, and that leads to less uh, mistakes and errors. Yeah, you're going to have time to great. write unit tests that a lot of people don't because it's too complicated and, and now you're back to a simple application that's very easy to unit test. Yeah, to be more careful on the boundaries though because they, they all talk to each other, right? And then you need, right, th- this I would probably put an experienced person. You need someone that overviews what are the the interfaces that all the microservices expose to to the rest of the you know to the other microservices and sometimes to to clients mm. right you need to make sure that uh, especially with the, the public endpoints that are consistent so you need one person that's experienced at least one person that's experienced in api design to make sure that you you get good good apis yeah that's the thing it, it's very difficult to change them once they're out there and this is if if, if, you, if you want to have no downtime deployments you cannot really introduce breaking changes. So you, you cannot remove an API. You cannot remove a column in the database. You know, there are some rules that you need to follow. Right. So when, when you design databases and when you design APIs, you need to have people review that very well, make sure that you like what you are designing because you're going to have to be with those decisions for a long time. Yeah, that's a good point. Some of the the HTTP frameworks for building services have even built in versioning 
mm-hmm. into them. I'm thinking of like Hug and some of these things. But obviously, you you can add it into your own apps pretty easily. Just set up a, a second endpoint rather than calling the same one. Is there something that you have to do that? Yeah, you, you have to do that. Basically, you're, you're forced. So imagine you have so you have five instances running of this one microservice, and and now you you want to introduce a breaking change in one endpoint. And of course, you don't want to go down for the upgrade. So you, you cannot stop the five instances at the same time. You're going to have to do a rolling update, upgrade, right? So, you know, during a window of time, you're going to have a bunch of instances on the old API and a bunch on the new. And, and then the rest of the system knows nothing of this. And they're going to start sending requests, probably assuming that the old API is in place. Yeah, until you upgrade that part, which then I'll go to the new one. But it'll be sort of moving around through these services as that process happens, right? Right. You, so you need to create a new endpoint for the breaking change, keep the old one working. And then once you're sure that the whole system is upgraded, it's on the new one, only then you can go ahead and uh, basically deprecate or remove the endpoint that you don't want to use anymore. Right. That's probably important as well to like eliminate the cruft building up as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think that the, you know, the, the, this, this platform encourages you to, to be clean and to, to keep things clean, to think about the, these important decisions, you know, very carefully. Yeah. Excellent. So we talked about how AWS Lambda has this sort of built-in latency. And when you think about performance, a lot of times there's really two sides to it, right? One is if I go and I hit that endpoint, how quick does it get back to me? And then the other one is if a million people hit it, how much does it degrade from that one person hitting it, right? Like how scalable is it and how like single request high performance is it? So I can certainly see how this generates better scalability. Like you can very carefully tune like the individual parts of your app and scale those up. But it also seems like it might add some latency, like for an individual request. So how much slower? Like, what's the the typical changes? Like, would I add ten milliseconds to a request? Would I add a hundred milliseconds? What? Yeah, that that's a good question. So even if we take serverless out of the equation, so yeah, because it's really bad. Yeah, right. So the the performance is not the same as in a monolith, just by the mere fact that in many cases the client is going to send the request. And the service that receives that request cannot carry out the request alone, right? It, it will have to talk to a bunch of other microservices, right? So, so there are a lot of communications among the microservices that, of course, will take time yeah. as well, right? So, so latencies increase no matter what, right? So microservices is not, if, if, if you're looking for performance, it's, it's not really. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be microservices no mi- versus monolith. It could be more coarse-grained microservices, more fine-grained ones. Potentially, mm-hmm. right? Right. The times that I've seen, they're, they're not really, you know, that terrible. So, I mean, we are talking like tens of uh, milliseconds. Yeah, you know, you're making requests over the internet, maybe across the country. It might be a hundred millisecond ping time. So if it's a hundred, hundred and ten, who cares? It could be in the noise, right? Yeah, yeah ab- exactly. absolutely. In many cases, it's going to be in the noise. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, compared to the, all, all the benefits that we already discussed, I, I, I think, you know, in my view, it's, it's a no-brainer. It, it makes a lot of sense in, in many cases. But, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it's all this complication of, you know, services talking to each other. And you might find that in some cases you, you need to go async. So you, you can sure. totally have an asynchronous microservice. So you, you tell it you need something and the service says, yeah, okay, I'll do it on my time. But right. keep going. Don't, don't mind me. Right, mm-hmm. that, that's totally fine. Yeah, for example, send this email. You don't have to wait for the email Absolutely. to be acknowledged yeah, to be sent, right? That, <laughs> that's those a are great pretty, example, right? Yeah, yeah. 
it can definitely email can be pretty slow actually given all the stuff that it does. email you, yeah you, you count it in seconds yes exactly microseconds and if you got to mail a group right like i, I want to send this mail to two thousand people in my class on my platform like okay that needs to be async just let me tell you i've learned that yeah and, and that, that's actually that that's a good example in which uh you you, you may in many cases, you're not interested if, if the email bounces. Yeah, what are you going to do about it anyway, right? Right, exactly. If it bounces, yeah, there's nothing to do. If you are, you, you can have that service that's asynchronous record the addresses that are uh, bouncing in, in a database that's going to be owned by that service. And then later on, you know, in a cron job or whatever, you can clean up the addresses that are bad. And so, so some other service can send a request to, to the email service and, and ask, you know, what, what are the, the bad addresses that you know? And that, that will be another endpoint. It'll return the addresses and then they can be cleaned up or, you know, the, the accounts can be canceled or whatever. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds really promising. It's yeah. a great way to think about problems, right? It, it's, it's all, you know, little pieces. So it, it's a lot easier to, to think about solutions. That, and, and, you know, at, at the beginning, I, I, it's hard to start thinking this way, but, but then you get used to it and all the problems become easier. Yeah, I, I can definitely see how that, that would happen. It might be difficult to think, how am I going to build this huge app? But if I can build, well, could you build 10 small apps and then have them help each other out, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, very cool. All right, Miguel, I think we're going to leave it there. That's like, I think, a great, great conversation on microservices. So let me ask you the two questions. So if, if you're going to work on your microservices in Python, what editor do you use? So uh, it's getting complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. Yeah, that, that's the correct answer for me. I usually iterate over a few editors. So Vim is my go-to editor. Many times I need to edit files on remote hosts. So Vim works anywhere. So that, that, that's, that's the one that I use most of the time. Sometimes I need to debug. And for that... Sometimes I use, you know, a, an IDE, and uh, the the two that I've been using, I, I can't even decide on one. I, the, the two that I'm using is PyCharm, and uh, lately Visual Studio Code, which which is surprisingly good. Yeah, the the Python plugin there is is doing really quite a bit. Python plugin is it's not an official plugin, but yeah, the, this person that I wrote it, he he did an awesome job. It, it's uh, it's very very good. Yeah, he did a great job. I actually had him on an episode maybe 20, oh. 20 shows back or something. It's it's very cool oh, how okay. we I'll... took like 10 different open source projects and like brought them all together and turned it into the plugin for Visual Studio Code. It was cool. Well, he did a great job. It, it's uh, super powerful. And in particular, I like the way that you you, uh, you set your configuration for a project, which basically it opens up a, uh, a text file and, and you write JSON. Yeah, I, I, it is quite interesting for sure. That's a um, you know contrasting to PyCharm where you have to enter a dialog, you know, a window mm-hmm. and find the setting that you want. It, well, it also makes it very source friendly, mm-hmm. like uh, yeah. source control friendly. Source control friendly, and uh, you can copy configs from one project to the next. It all becomes uh, much uh, much easier. Yeah, great. All right, and PyPI package. So one package that I'm, I'm sort of ashamed I, I didn't know, and I, I, I learned about it from my colleagues at Rackspace, it's called Arrow. And so, so this is a package that is it, a uh, drop-in replacement for, for the daytime package in the Python library, but it, it implements all the holes in support that uh, the daytime has, for example. Yeah, definitely, I would definitely second that one. Arrow is awesome. Yeah, I, I, I only knew it from, from a few months since I've been working with this team. And I, yeah, it, I, I use it all the time now. So, for example, it has 
you know, daytime starts with, uh, with this naive time zone approach where there's no time zone. So by default, Arrow will, will use UTC, which is what you always want anyway, right? So you always yeah. work UTC. Especially then, if you're working on servers. Right, yeah. You, you want to have uh, common units. So, so that, that's the one that everybody uses. And then uh, support to convert to and from the ISO 8601, which is uh, daytime can output ISO 8601, but cannot import from it. So if uh, something very common, so another thing that I, I, I tend to work on is, is the, the billing microservices in my team. And you, you want to know, uh, you, you have a date and you want to know the, the first of the month and the, the last of the month. It's like in one line, you, you can get it. You don't have to do strange aerobics or acrobatics <laughs> to, <laughs> yeah. to get the first and the last of, uh, of a given month. So yes. Yeah, people should definitely check that out. All right, so people heard this conversation. They're probably excited about microservices. How do they get started? What do they do? So what I recommend, if, if you have uh, three hours to waste, <laughs> you can check out the, the YouTube video of my tutorial. I think I've made it very approachable. If, if you're experienced developing either Django, it doesn't need to be Flask. So any web, uh, you know, monolithic web applications, I think you're going to pick up the tutorial really well the code that comes with the tutorial, which is on, on GitHub, includes a, a Vagrant setup, so you can deploy the, the, the system that I show in the class to uh, to your machine, to your laptop, uh, on a Vagrant VM, and then you can play with it. And even at the end of the class, I, I listed a, a list of things that uh, that would be great ideas to uh, if you want to practice. So you, you can take the project that I built and then extend it in many different ways. Uh, that would be my recommendation. Uh, you, you can look into Kubernetes, which is uh, it's something that you can also deploy to your laptop if you want to use it for testing. Uh, I include it in, in, the, in the GitHub repositories for this class, the, uh, the, the scripting uh, required to deploy the same application to Kubernetes, if, if you're into that. And then the, the other valid option would be to look into AWS Lambda right. and API Gateway. Have you seen Zappo? You mean Zappa, yes. Zappa, that's it, Zappa. Yeah, which Zappa, is a framework yes. that just like uses Lambda as a backend. Yes, I, I've seen it. I, I, I even wrote a clone of it, which is called Slam, which is in my GitHub uh, account as well. But yes, the, the idea is that you, you take a whiskey application, which is really a function, if, if you think about it. Whiskey, you know, it's a callable, not really yeah. a function, but a callable. <laughs> the API uh, right? is quite simple, You, you yes. can think about it as a, as a function. Right, and and then Lambda requires a function, so th there's a really a match. The, the only problem is that the way Lambda expects the function is not the you know in the way Whiskey applications are formatted. So then Zappa comes in, or my Slam, also, and basically the, it, it's an adapter that sits in between Lambda and your application and makes the conversion between the two formats. I see. All right. Well, that's really cool. That that's a really easy way to deploy your your any Python web application that that's you know whiskey, so Django, Flask, Pyramid, Bottle, all those. Mm -hmm. You can get it deployed to AWS. Yeah. All right. Well, very very cool. So I definitely recommend people check out your tutorial, which I'll put in the show notes, and I'm also going to put Kelsey Hightower's talk yeah, in that, there as well because uh, those go well together i think that's that's actually a good thing to watch first if, if you like that then you, you can learn how those things work by watching the tutorial yeah kelsey's is high level and flashy and interesting and then yours is the detail yeah right i wish i could be as, as good a speaker as he is <laughs> yeah that was really great but yeah <laughs> all right well miguel thank you so much for being on on the show once again yeah. it was great to chat with you thank you for inviting me you bet bye
This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Our guest was Miguel Grinberg, and this episode has been brought to you by Datadog and Talk Python Training. Datadog gives you visibility into the whole system running your code. Visit talkpython.fm slash datadog and see what you've been missing. They'll even throw in a free t-shirt for doing the tutorial. Are you or a colleague trying to learn Python? Have you tried books and videos that just left you bored by covering topics point by point? Well, check out my online course, Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps at talkpython.fm slash course to experience a more engaging way to learn Python. And if you're looking for something a little more advanced, try my Write Pythonic Code course at talkpython.fm slash pythonic. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, Google Play feed at slash play, and direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. Our theme music is Developers, Developers, Developers by Corey Smith, who goes by Smix. Corey just recently started selling his tracks on iTunes, so I recommend you check it out at talkpython.fm slash music. You can browse his tracks he has for sale on iTunes and listen to the full-length version of the theme song. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Smix, let's get out of here. Stating with my voice, there's no norm that I can feel within. Haven't been sleeping, I've been using lots of rest. I'll pass the mic back to who rocked it best.